Welcome to the Mid-Stage Startup Momentum Podcast. Each week, we interview up-and-coming founders of some of the fastest-growing mid-stage startups across the world. Your host is Roland Siebelink, who will share some of his own experience helping startups scale from 10 to 1,000 people in a few years. Here is Roland. Hello, and welcome to the Mid-Stage Startup Momentum Podcast. My name is Roland Siebelink, founder and CEO of the Mid-Stage Institute, and we help fast-growing startups thrive and keep up their momentum. And one of those fast-growing startups is with me today. Here is Najid Kassam, the CEO and founder of Kila, dialing in from Vancouver, BC. How are you today? I'm, I'm really well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Roland. A pleasure to be here and, and happy to be um, supporting the important work you do and sharing a little bit about the Kila story. That's awesome. Yes, uh, we have a lot of listeners, founders, especially who are just about to reach product market fit and want to know what comes after. So let's hear that. Find from, lots uh... of Tylenol. There's my short answer. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Okay, so uh, let's hear the Kila story. Let's start with what do you offer? Who do you serve? And what difference do you make for them in the world? Great question. So Kila is a technology company that serves nonprofits, civil society organizations, and, and local governments. We build fundraising technology that helps these institutions, these organizations unlock generosity from their constituents and from their donors. Specifically, our technology, which, you know, there's a range of, of ways people use the tech, but helps people process donations, helps conversions on them, helps them steward and engage donors, and ultimately get them to give again. Uh, for some of our clients, we're the system of record. So we're a CRM or a donor management tool. For others, we sit on top of their existing CRM tools, but all of our technology is powered and backed by data and by data science. We have a, an incredible machine learning team that helps to empower organizations' data. I, I saw this really incredible statistic that less than 40% of nonprofits actually use their data. I would bet that's under 20% or 15% for use that data effectively. We try to bridge that gap and do it in a way that you don't need a computer science degree to benefit from. Ultimately, our customers raise hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year collectively and change the world. Uh, they're, they're, they're empowering our communities. They're helping folks in need. They're defending the environment and standing up for civil rights. And it makes it pretty easy to get up in the morning and, and work these 80-hour weeks. So before we go into uh, some of your customers, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of Kira? Of course. Yeah, so I feel like I should start by making the declaration I'm a recovering corporate lawyer. It's, it's an important thing to note. Oh, no, and, I'm and, so and, sorry to hear that. I know, I know. But you know what? <laughs> All, all of us get out, or at least many of us do. So I'm grateful for that. Look, the origin story of, of this business is a little bit, it's, it's very personal. My family um, has lived in three continents over the past three generations mm -hmm. and not always leaving because of choice. And mm -hmm. so my mom and dad were able to get over some very difficult circumstances because of the support of civil society, because of the support of nonprofits. So since I was three years old, I've been involved in the nonprofit sector as a volunteer, as a fundraiser, eventually as a founder of a nonprofit, mm -hmm. uh, multiple executive directors, board member, charity lawyer. I've kind of sat in many seats in the sector and have a deep and intimate relationship with the sector. Mm -hmm. The origin story of Kila is like pretty boring. It should, it's like every entrepreneur's story. I was sitting on the board of a nonprofit. I was frustrated by the lack of great technology. I felt the problem. I was the problem. I wanted to solve the problem for our organization. And that began uh, what is, you know, a, a, a few years now where, you know, of the beginning of an, of an incredible journey. So, mm -hmm. you know, what's exciting to me is we're innovating for a sector that doesn't get a lot of innovation. There's a mm -hmm. lot of money in the space. 
a lot of technology spend, but it's very antiquated. And so to be able to serve a sector, like you said, that has purpose, but also um, do it by bringing incredible transformative tech to solve the problem that I, Najid, felt, you know, mm-hmm. six, seven years or whatever it was ago, 2014, 2015, something like that. So that's the origin story. And over, we, we, we sold our first package in Q4, our, our first software, Q4 of 2016. And really since 2017, we've been on this truly incredible rocket ship up and to the right, as they say. Not, yeah, not always comfortably up and to the right, but definitely now grateful to be, you know, considered high growth and fast growing and, and, and doing, you know, incredible work for our customers. Excellent. Okay, that sounds uh, like a great story. You've been at it for a while, right? What is the market like? You said there's not much uh, investment in this uh, sector, not that many uh, solutions out there. No, it still... so I, I want to correct the record on that. There's okay. a lot. Of there's a lot? Okay. Really crappy, old, kind of antiquated, not tech-forward organizations. Nonprofits in the U.S. spend $10 billion a year on software. That's a, a huge it's market. A, it's a big market. It's a growing market. Uh, they also spend $40 billion a year on professional services and consultants. And so a space this large has multiple billion dollar players in it. They've built great businesses around what they're doing, but they haven't built great technology. And okay. so, you know, it was, the, the, the tech is clunky, especially for large organizations. It's clunky. So can you talk a little bit about the traction you've had? I don't know if you can share numbers or, or some customers that make the story very concrete uh, yeah, and, and what, how they benefited from your product. Yeah. So I can, I won't share like revenue numbers, but what I can share is like value. Cause I really yeah. talk about a value. You, you know, I think the number is folks who use our small to medium-sized nonprofits mm-hmm. who use our technology grow like 40% on average. I think it's 30 to 45% after year, their first year and 10 to 20% year over year. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Now that's not the biggest charities that, you know, that we have an organization that does a hundred million dollars of donations. We're not increasing <laughs> that by 40%, you know, right. but on average, especially the orgs sub 5 million or sub 10 million, I forget which one it is. It's a market jump. It's a real, it's real. I don't know how else to say that. So it speaks to, to the value of our technology. That's it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it's really, um, your technology that makes those fundraisers more effective, right? So what, what exactly does that mean? Is it telling them uh, like who to reach out to, suggesting campaigns? Uh, Absolutely. Can you, can you illustrate that a little yeah, bit Yeah, so, I mean, obviously with, so we have, you know, we have like our customer count is in the thousands, right? Mm-hmm. So like, there, and there, when you get to that point, the use cases are truly, mm-hmm. not, you, there are people that use our tech in ways that I never imagined. When we of course. <laughs> that, that's an honor. It's a, it's a badge of honor, I think. But like, you know, our technology some of our core features are are our forms tools for example Mm -hmm. you roland where are you calling from uh from san francisco california yeah so i I don't want to say almost certainly but possibly or maybe even probably you've made a donation using our technology right probably (laughs) because it's the back end it's a form on a donation it's embedded into a website you'd never know it's us really Mm -hmm. unless you Mm -hmm. look really carefully at the code. Right, it's white labeled essentially, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's embedded. And so, you know, you make a donation through a form. That's our mm-hmm. tech. The receipt right. you automatically receive, that's IRS compliant. That's our tech. The, you know, if our customer is using our CRM, that's automatically recorded in the CRM. That's our tech. And, you know, if you want to send a, a thank you letter and a series of emails or text messages or 
or schedule a, a thank you call. That's our tech. You know, mm-hmm. like it's truly workflow and process management tools all informed by that data stuff, science and all that stuff. Um, so, so really an organization, whether they use our CRM or not, they're running their fundraising operations through our work. You did mention also in the beginning that sometimes you offer the CRM and sometimes you run on mm-hmm. top of a CRM. Which use case have you found the most compelling and is one more of an ideal customer than the other? Yeah, so it actually was never supposed to be this way. Like, okay. This is if you have a lot of founders who listen, like this is the story of the pivot, right? And it's not really <laughs> a pivot or repurposing, but what we found is like a couple things. The first mm-hmm. one is CRMs are pretty much a commodity. Right. Okay. But they're a commodity that people are very, very attached to. Even mm-hmm. when they hate them, they're attached to them because change is hard. Yeah. That's the first kind of comment or premise of this. The second is Kila's CRM is built mm-hmm. really for small to medium-sized nonprofits, sort of oh, sub, 10, mm-hmm. sub 10 million. But all the technology that we built on top of our CRM, our forms, our automation, our predictive analytics, our wealth screening, our demographic data, all of the things that like make the CRM powerful are actually not suited only for small nonprofits, right? Or medium-sized nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So we had customers or I guess prospects then or people, organizations who came to us and said, we have no interest leaving our CRM. That sounds like the kind of headache that I never want to have in my life. But Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. want all this cool innovation. We want all this transformative leading edge stuff. Can you offer it. And it was always, no, come join our CRM. We wanted to displace. And then one day we had, we looked in the mirror and said, why are we limiting our market? Why are we li- li- limiting it to like those people when the technology is fundamentally the same? Yes, there are differences. And as we grew and as our revenue hit different milestones, we were able to take on that capacity, take on a little bit of that risk. And I think that's where, you know, so the ideal customers, our, our ideal customer for the CRM or the full suite tool is, mm-hmm. is really, you know, sort of one to 10 million in total donations. Yes. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, the other tool is only, is, is really 10 to a hundred. I think the largest we have is a hundred, but it probably scales up to a couple hundred million in donations, yeah. mm-hmm. but they're only using one slice of the mm-hmm. technology slack for whatever stack, excuse me, for what they need. And so, you know, that ideal customer is like a fundraising organization and it's only a sliver of their team using Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about those partnerships? Many of our founders are extremely interested in how to even get started with partnerships. Partnerships are a long game. You're not mm-hmm. trying to, you know, it's, it's, if you try to get a partnership done in a week or a month, even a quarter, probably unlikely, but when you have the relationships or you invest in the relationships, mm-hmm. they come to fruition. And, and I think being a good person, understanding that other companies especially have their own business requirements and values and there's competitiveness, and just being upfront about that. Mm-hmm. The other part, you know, we have a lot of partnerships with the sector too. So right. nonprofit associations that like mm-hmm. have hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of nonprofit members or fundraising consultants or, you know, education institutes or whatever in the space. So these partnerships, I mean, that's a, it's a sales pipeline, Roland, right? Like right? For those that you don't have those relationships, you treat them like a sale. It's just a one step removed kind of and you got to work on it. You got to invest in it. You got to bleed mm-hmm. for it. And how and important are those partnerships for your go-to market fundamental. at large? Fundamental. fundamental. Yeah. I don't know the numbers, but it's 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 material for sure. And I would say it's fundamental. And in this next chapter of our growth, as we continue, mm-hmm. 
only so many damn sales calls you can make, right? right. So truthfully, <laughs> and no matter how much, how many people you've got, but they really do add that network or exponentialized effect. And I would say once you've got product market fit or you're damn close to it, mm -hmm. that's a great opportunity to start thinking about that because it's a really a scale question. Right, but right. fundamentally important. Tell me a little bit about your team. You already started that discussion. So how big is the team now? Yeah. Uh, what kind of people are on it? Like what are the huge departments? Yeah, good question. So I think we're 40 something now. Okay. Um, I don't know the exact number. It's hard to keep track. Mm -hmm. But you know, say, say around 50. Let's say around 50. A couple of things I'm really proud of. We're like 60 plus percent women. Um, oh, great. Okay. 30% people of color, which makes mm -hmm. me really happy. We're about, we're a little more product heavy than go to market. Uh, it's okay. Like right up, it's right about equal. I don't know what the number is, but like, you know, if you add UX, UI, product management, mm -hmm. you know, engineering, delivery, all of that, it's, a, it's about, you know, about up the middle. I think a little bit more product heavy probably. Okay. Um, and then of course, on the, on the go to market side, we have our customer care department, which is what we call customer success. Yeah. our marketing team and a couple of people working on the sales team, mostly like to catch all those leads and, and convert them to sales. Yeah. And partnerships, is that a team too? Or is one, that one person. One person. She oh, wow. is amazing. <laughs> oh no, like, sure. I guess two. It's two. two. It's two. Two people but, now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so that actually shows how seriously you're taking it. You're actually putting full-time people oh, I on think the partnerships, she's right? the most, you know, I, you know, I'm saying this in an interview and I'm happy to share it, you know, <laughs> It's she's her return on investment is is incredible. Okay, okay, very good, very good. Let's talk about we talked a little bit about competition, but I want to talk about competition in the in the focus of go to market, right? So, mm -hmm. if you said there was a lot of legacy software out there, then I'm assuming mm -hmm. many companies were already working with something. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you break into that market? How did you try to get people to even consider uh, mm -hmm. the, the inherent pain of of having to consider switching solutions. Absolutely. So the crazy data point is like 40 or 30 something percent of nonprofits in the US still don't use the CRM. Oh, wow. So, and they're all the small. Were they right? your first target then? To, they were, to and that's it? why yeah. we started small. I don't think mm -hmm. that's why we started small. I should not take credit for a strategy that mostly just happened. The mm. reality was we started, you know, our first customers were people, well, I guess, we didn't know our very first customer, but our first, you know, early customers were folks that we knew in the communities we, I worked in, or I had relationships in, right. As every startup is. Mm -hmm. And those were small, you know, kind of sub $2 million organizations. Thankfully, those are also the ones that are most underusing CRM. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. You know, we just like, there's a greenfield opportunity and for a new market entrant, the, the innovative, easy to use played really well for these non-CRM using customers or prospects. And so it just sort of worked. How long did it figure for did it take for you folks to figure out what's your standardized sales playbook, what maximizes your chances of closing a sale? So a good founder, and I'm yeah. gonna pretend I'm one for the sake of this conversation, or <laughs> let's or, just or pretend that's good. That's aspire good. to be one says that you don't figure that out. You keep tweaking it. It's right. always changing right. as the stock market crashes, as COVID, as God knows whatever happens, that's going to be tweaked and changed. I would say it took about 18 months to figure mm -hmm. out the cadence though. Like what's our normal sales cycle? How do we understand that one? Just needed enough data. Mm -hmm. 
to be able to see trends and to pattern check and to look a little bit of cyclicality and like the different kinds of leads and the different channels and how they converted and the rates, like to me is basic, maybe not to all folks, like basic data analysis, but you needed to have enough data and enough kind of mistakes and, mm -hmm. and learnings to be able to confidently assess it. Um, was there so, like a particular point in your sales pitch that you were sure was going to be a, a killer point that didn't land at all? Ooh, good question. <laughs> that didn't land. That's a good question. Well, when we originally launched, we had like more of a project management element as well, because uh -huh. we thought if there's CRM projects is like the other half of the work. And it was, it, it did the, uh, not landing is an understatement. It, is, <laughs> it was just, no, it, it was crashed. Just, it crashed, <laughs> it burned. So I would say like that would be an example. Okay. Okay. Can you talk a little Stay bit the about heck away from it is what I tell our team now. Don't talk. We've got like 50 customers that still use it. We can't get rid of it. But yeah, it's that, terrible. That, that happens, right? You have like a few people using the feature. And even if you don't consider it a core part of the product anymore, those 50 users will want you to keep it open for them, right? And and 50 customers on a, on a B2B SaaS business is real customer base. It's real Absolutely. revenue. So, but that pretty crashed and burned pretty hard. Mm -hmm. I'm asking this example because uh, a lot of founders are struggling with like how strong should I attach myself to my vision and not give up versus how what I learned from customers and then basically adapt to customer feedback. So What's your I, learning I think, there, Najib? Yeah, I think it's a hybrid between the two. Yeah. Like I think it's really important. You've got to run through the wall with your vision and know yeah. that sometimes yeah. you got to change direction. You know, I think founders have got to shout from the rooftops, but be strategic mm -hmm. and, and assess the, like, if your message isn't hitting, you either have to, you're either way too ahead of your time, you're too behind your time, you're saying the wrong message, right? And mm -hmm. so I think it's a balance now with our innovation, we're able to like lead the industry, but yeah. only you, <laughs> I heard this, this great quote on a TV show. I don't remember. It was from Westwick. It's like some philosopher was in ancient, I think it was ancient France, was like, oh, there go my people. Tell me where they're going so I can lead them. <laughs> like that, like, and, and it kind of reminds me of your question. It's like, you kind of both have to have their attention to be able to lead them where you want because transformation is big in terms of what we do, but you got to have your customers to do it. You got to have a voice, you got to have an audience. And so it's a balance between running through the wall with what you believe and listening to what they have to say. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it also reminds me of another, I'm not sure he merits the title philosopher, but he said, you have to be ahead of your people, but not more than one street length, or they cannot follow you around the corner, right? Uh, that was the famous yeah. business guru, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. So... <laughs> <laughs> I um, guess I guess he was a leader. I, I wanted to hear a little bit about your fundraising strategy for your so own business. Oh God, sure. <laughs> Look, we've taken on capital, yeah. uh, not a huge amount. We're not mm -hmm. bootstrapped. It was a seed um, round like two, three years ago, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, in two parts, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we've taken a less traditional approach. Mm -hmm. like it wasn't, we kind of, for the first couple million bucks, we just like went out as we needed it, to be okay. honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, like friends and family and angel investors. And then we did a seed where we got a couple of like, 
they're like glorified angel investors. They're like an angel and a couple of their friends. They start this little seed fund. We didn't really feel the need to get an institutional investor early. Now, you know, now we're having those conversations. And so, okay. you know, what I like to say, and, I, and I, I've taught this to many founders, groups and individually, fundraising doesn't look like it does on TV. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like I have this idea, get pre-seed. Okay. Then get seed. Once you get your first $50,000 of ARR, you know, like it doesn't work like that. Um, very, very different in reality. Right. Some sure for three startups that, you know, that became billion dollar companies, but there's 3000 other ones that didn't go like that, that might still be equally or more successful. Right. And so bootstrap huge survival bias in what you see in the media. <laughs> absolutely. But, but yeah. even the survival bias, the narrative, and I think VCs are either to credit or to blame, depending on which side of the table you're at, they've created this, like, because there's a power dynamic too, of remember, course, yes. and that's neither good nor bad. It's just true. You know, right. what I would say to, to founders is don't raise capital unless you absolutely have to. Right. Like, be, like, like you know, it has to be a part of the business model almost, right? And that business model has to scale. That's the part yes. of the sentence that people forget, right? Yes. Like, it's fine to rely on. It's only on worth it when it scales for investors, right? Otherwise, there's no point. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Stay away from external funding. Friends and family, fine. Take your first whatever, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, a million, whatever you can do and keep the valuation as low as possible or do it on a, a convertible. And don't take capital unless you are certain. If I spend money on this, I'm going to see this return on investment. And right. again, it's not that simple. It's not that black and white, but- when you take other people's money, you don't sleep at night. It's just the truth. <laughs> okay. Like, that might that might be a good title for the podcast if you're willing to use it for that. <laughs> and, and I'm very grateful to our investors. And I want to be super clear on the record here. They're incredible, wonderful people and funds, but it's a different game then. Yeah. As somebody said in uh, when we interviewed them for our, uh, our Mid-Stage Momentum book, the term fundraising is really a misnomer it's uh, an irrevocable sale of part of your company if not part of your life and it's it's a marriage it's 10 20 i mean you can get divorced but it's messy it's expensive and it takes a long damn time and so and most founder relationships last a lot longer than most marriages these days right (laughs) i'm very happily married with me too me too (laughs) i will say i will say that Good for, good for loyalty. So how big do you see Kila become, Najid? I mean, our target's 100 million in revenue. It continues to be 100 million. I don't care about the valuation, although that would make a nice valuation. Of course. I care about 100 million in revenue equals this many customers spending this much money every year with this much reliance on our technology. And then from a product perspective, what do we need to do for their bottom lines? And even though nonprofits have bottom lines, right? They need mm-hmm, to scale, they need to raise, they need to whatever. So how much value can we create? If, we, if we're going to be having $100 million, what's really cool is if it's a 10x rule, which is what I want, if we have $100 million in revenue, we need to create a billion dollars of value to our customers every right, year. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So I don't care what the valuation is, although I do care. I care about like what is the ROI for my customers? Because if that's good, the rest will fall into place because that's how math works. Yeah, and I really love how that's your true North Star, like the value you create for your customers. You know, we don't announce our raises publicly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's a policy we have. We did it once, and I'll never do it. Well, I don't know. Never say never, but like, I don't need to. I it's you shouldn't celebrate raising capital. You should celebrate 
launching a product or a staff member overachieving targets or creating impact for your customers, but raising yeah, money or a, thousand, is, or a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 customer absolutely. Uh, lifelines, that's, right? So yeah, that's mm-hmm. celebratory. That's yeah. worth it. Releasing a new version of your software, rebuilding something, you know, like, you know, adding a new department. These mm-hmm. are things that are like create value for the business. Raising money. Somebody describes it to me lot yesterday as a necessary evil. Necessary is the adjective. Evil is the noun there. Like you don't, <laughs> right? Like you shouldn't celebrate that. It's you should celebrate the stuff that matters and is adding value to the market. I love that insight. That's really good, uh, Najid. So, as a last question, if people want to hear more about Kila, figure out more, where should they go? And uh, is there a particular thing that they should look at or download? I don't know about download. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> just go to Kila.com. K-E-E-L-A.com. Um, you're going to learn a ton about our technology. And just, I think from a content perspective, our blog is awesome. It has got so much incredible content that we create, internal, external. It's got, you know, great premium stuff that you can download to learn more about specific things in the sector. And it's a beautiful homage in terms of the, the team and the, to, to, to our company and our growth. So that's where I would start. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Najit Kasam, the, the CEO and founder of Kila. Thank you so much for your time, your honesty, and your amazing insights. Of course. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for all the listeners once again. We'll have a new episode for you next week. Like what you heard? Subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Tune in next time for more hot startups and interviews with some of the highest momentum startup founders in tech today.